Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Our reading today is from 1 Corinthians. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. Thanks, Jaron. You may be seated. And good afternoon, Disciples Church. He is risen. He is risen. He is risen. Amen. It is so good to see you, so good to be with you. My name is Jonathan Mosier, and it's my privilege and honor to get to open up the Word of God with you this morning. So you can turn to 1 Corinthians 15. If you're not already there, it's, it's an exciting thing to be able to get together. We realize it's a Saturday evening, realize that's a bit unorthodox for us as a church, certainly. But if you think back to a year ago, uh, our Easter service was done digitally. It was sent out via email. The, the sermon was pre-recorded. The worship songs were set out. The idea that a year later we're able to gather together, to worship together, to lift up God's name together, to talk about the beauty and the majesty of the resurrection is an amazing gift. Uh, and personally, I'm encouraged. Last week, I wasn't sure that I'd be able to be here. My wife has COVID, had COVID. She's out of her quarantine per- period now. Um, but after 10 days and two negative COVID tests, uh, I'm excited that I can be here with you this evening. And so it is so good um, to be in the house of the Lord together. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15. <clears throat> the nice thing about preaching the Easter service is that everybody comes in already knowing what the topic is going to be. Like No one's surprised that we're going to talk this evening about the resurrection. No one's thrown off by, by that. But the risk of familiarity is that for many of us, our minds may tend to drift. We may tend to check out. We've got a lot of other things on our minds. Some of you have to prepare dishes for tomorrow. Some of you are hosting and you're thinking about the cleaning that you have to do when you get home. Some of you are deciding who puts out the Easter eggs and all the candy and all of those sorts of things. Others of you are making a mad rush to the grocery store to find the last of the marshmallow peeps, unaware that there are far better seasonal candy options available to you than marshmallow peeps. But the reason that the text that we're going to look at this evening is so beautiful is that in essence, this is a sermon written by the Apostle Paul wherein he presumes familiarity with the resurrection story to the audience whom he's speaking to. 
He's not trying to convey new details. He's not trying to tell them a story that they weren't familiar with. He's trying to remind them of what they had already known, and he's trying to really dissect and deconstruct the story of the resurrection so that they and us 2,000 years later can understand in depth the wonder and the majesty of the resurrection story. And Paul goes to great lengths in this text to illustrate the importance of the resurrection. And he does something that's unusual here. He actually wants to impress upon us the importance of the resurrection by trying to describe what Christianity would be without it. And he does that in verse 13. He says this, but if there, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Paul says, try to imagine what Christianity would be like without the resurrection, and very quickly you will realize that it is a hopeless and vain religion. That if Jesus was not raised, then your sin is not forgiven. Our preaching is wasted. Your faith is empty. And we deserve nothing but the pity of onlookers. See, the truth is, regardless of what your perspective is of Jesus coming into this text, this text does not allow you to view Jesus as just a good teacher. It doesn't allow you to view him as a wise sage or a virtuous example and reject the reality of the resurrection. Well, why? Because Jesus himself consistently prophesied his own resurrection as the primary evidence of his deity, his identity, his divinity as the Son of God. We find this in John chapter 2. Just after Jesus has cleared the temple, the people come to him and say, why, Jesus, should we believe the things that you say and the things that you do and the gospel that you proclaim to us? And Jesus answers them in verse 19 of that text, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. You see, if Jesus did not raise from the dead, we could not look at him with admiration or cling to his teaching, or view him as a right model for living. You don't admire someone who lies about their identity and dies for a worthless cause. But the reason that we can speak with absolute confidence and admiration and the remembrance and and think thankfulness at the death of Jesus is that he didn't stay in the grave. So C.S. Lewis writing on it said it this way, the New Testament writers speak as if Christ's achievement in rising from the dead was the first event of its kind in the whole history of the universe. He is the first fruits, the pioneer of life. He has forced open a door that has been locked since the death of the first man. He has met, fought, and beaten the king of death. Everything is different because he has done so. See, rightly, it was the resurrection of Jesus Christ that had the most profound impact on the New Testament writers and by extension on our faith. Because if it's true 
that Jesus was actually dead. Heart stopped, brainwaves ceased, no longer breathing, dead and buried for three days. And if somehow, by the miraculous power of his own personhood, he was raised from the dead, everything is different. So I want to show you the power of the resurrection through the life of Paul, who wrote this text. So look with me, if you would, at verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word, I preach to you unless you believed in vain. See, we tend to view salvation as something that happens at a very particular point in time because we are an event-oriented people. We like to mark dates on the calendar and and we like to journal and, and have diaries and we like to have all kinds of remembrances for specific events in our life. So I prayed a prayer, I walked an aisle, I was at a vacation Bible school or a camp, I filled out a decision card, etc. But but Paul, in describing salvation here, describes it a little bit differently. He says salvation is something that, yes, happens in a person's life, but it has ongoing effects for the whole course of their life. It happens when we receive and actively believe and are transformed by the power of the gospel. And the natural question that then follows is this, well, what then is the gospel? And Paul is going to give us a divinely inspired snapshot of the gospel in the very next verse. For I delivered to you, verse 3, as of First importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, and then to the twelve. So Paul is speaking to the Corinthian church, and by extension us, and he's saying this, I want you to understand what, what is absolutely the most important thing to us as believers in Jesus Christ. Understand this, the Bible is not first and foremost a system of beliefs or behaviors. It is not primarily a rule book or a guide to life. The purpose of the Bible is to reveal the person of Christ. The Bible tells the story of a holy and gracious creator who loved us so much that he was willing to to become a man, to die a cruel death on a cross to save us from the punishment that we absolutely deserved for our sin and our rebellion against him. And Christianity is unique from all other religions for, for many reasons, but among them is the fact that our symbol is a cross, an instrument of death, a symbol of brutality. And when we gather, we sing, sing, we sing songs about the cross, we read scriptures about the cross, we take communion, remembering Jesus Christ's death. All of these things point to the death of our Savior. That's inherently strange. We don't usually write songs about the instruments of death that took the lives of people that we love. And all of this would be morose and macabre if it wasn't for the resurrection. That this self-same Savior, the God-man, actually rose from the dead after being dead in the ground and buried for three days. And we call that simple proclamation of the story the gospel. And it means good news. It's a proclamation of truth and forgiveness and, and freedom. And I want you to notice there are three changes that the resurrection brings about in the life 
of those who know Jesus. And the first one is this, the resurrection changes our identification. The resurrection changes our identification. Look at verse 8. Last of all, after appearing after his resurrection to to Peter and, and to the disciples and to 500 other people who were gathered together, last of all, as to one untimely born, he, that is the resurrected Jesus, appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Now, it's amazing that in this written sermon to the Corinthian church, Paul states this, I am unworthy to even be called an apostle because I I persecuted the church of God. See, prior to being a follower of Jesus Christ, Paul had gone by his given name, which was Saul. Saul was born into a religious, righteous family. He was a Pharisee, which meant that he was a religious zealot and well-educated in the understanding of the Old Testament. And he saw the gospel as a threat to his position as a religious leader and to his heritage as a Jew. And so Saul devoted his life to hunting down, imprisoning, and murdering followers of Jesus. One day, as, Paul, or as Saul rather, was on the road to Damascus where he knew that a church was gathered worshiping Jesus, A bright light appeared before him. He was knocked to the ground. He was immediately blinded, and he heard a voice call out from the light saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And upon asking the identity of this individual, he revealed himself to be the resurrected, ascended Christ. And in the most unbelievable display of God's pursuing and chasing love that's ever recorded in the Bible, Saul, in that moment, has his life transformed by the resurrection of Jesus. And his whole identity changes, starting with his name. See, Saul was a royal name. It was a name that was familiar to the people of Israel. Their very first king was a man named Saul. And Saul actually meant one who is asked for. It was the idea that to be named Saul indicated that you were inherently a blessing, that you were someone of noble birth. But Saul changes his name to Paul, which means small or humble. See, he no longer wanted to be known for his education or his occupation, for his ethnic purity or for his self-righteous deeds. Instead, he begins to refer to himself as the least of all the apostles, And in other texts, he goes so far as to say, I'm the least of all Christians, and in fact, I'm the chief of sinners. And Paul reminds us of all of this in this text because he wants everyone here to understand that God's saving grace in his life was not a result of anything he'd done. Far from it. Jesus chose this persecutor of the church solely to put his love and grace on display so that you and I could look on and say, if God could love someone as sinful and broken as Paul, maybe he could love someone like me. See, the beauty of the gospel story is that like Paul, we are far more wicked than we could have ever realized. And yet we're far more loved than we ever thought possible. So first, the resurrection changes our identification, but then, number two, the resurrection changes our motivation. Look at verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, 
And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Paul says, when the resurrection gospel took hold of my life, everything changed. And do you understand that God didn't just save Paul for him to sit there until he died? No, he gave Paul's life true and deep and satisfying meaning, a meaning that he had never known in his religious pursuits, a meaning that he had never known outside of the resurrected Jesus. In fact, Paul goes so far as to say in the book of Philippians, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glorify Jesus Christ. Paul says, my whole life is obsessed with Jesus now. Every motivation and everything that drives me and everything I live for has changed to the point where for my, my mere existence is just to be all about Jesus Christ. It's just to declare his goodness and his love and his grace and his pursuit of people and to understand his holiness and to live an entirely new life in him. And you know what? If you threaten me for my faith in Jesus Christ and even if you were to kill me, do you know what I just get? Even more Jesus Everything has changed. Paul says, I realize that the grace that God had toward me and all I wanted was to tell everyone about Jesus. So here is this man now named Paul, small, humble, a nobody trying to tell everybody about somebody. And God uses Paul, the Christian killer, the Gentile hater, to become the most effective missionary and evangelist the world has ever known. Do you understand that as you sit here today hearing this message and this text, that none of that is by accident? That God in his, in his providence and in his sovereignty ordained that you hear his word. Do you understand that that's a demonstration of God's love for you, that he died for your sin, that he rose from the dead to give you a new identity, and that now he has a new purpose and a plan for your life? That in a culture that is self-obsessed and vapid, he built you and placed you for fruitful labor, meaningful work. In a world where people are longing for meaning and significance, and look for it in whatever piece of identity they can find and have to grasp onto it for dear life and all of their hope, he, he offers to you a new identification and a new charge, which is to make much of him, to begin to live for his glory, that through interacting with others, they would have cause to make much of your Lord in your life. So the resurrection changes our identity, it changes our motivation, and finally, the resurrection changes our destination. Look at verse 12. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? This last year has been a hard one for many many people. Within the last four months, 
we've had three beloved people connected to our congregation pass. And when someone we love dies, we cannot help but be struck by the absurdity of death. The reason that death is so hard for us, the reason it's so hard for us to process and work through is that we were not intended to experience it. We were created for perfect, uninterrupted communion with God and with one another. But when Adam sinned, everything broke. See, Adam was our representative, the representative of humanity itself. And when he chose in the Garden of Eden to ignore the instruction of God and to glorify himself over God himself, in that moment, all people were damned. We are born sinners. And we are also sinners by choice. We affirm our identity as sinners every day. And because of Adam's sin, the tapestry of creation was torn. And death and hell were the consequences, an eternity spent apart from God. We desperately needed a deliverer. We needed someone to pay the penalty. And just a few verses later in this chapter, Paul says this, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, that is Adam, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. And what Paul's talking about there is what Martin Luther was later going to refer to as the great exchange that at the cross, Christ exchanged his position for yours. So that as he hung on that tree with nails through his hands and through his feet and a crown of thorns pounded into his skull, bleeding and torn, all of the sin for all believers, past, present, and future, was placed onto his body. That he experienced not only physical agony, but spiritual agony as his father turned his back on his son. And where for the first time in Jesus' eternal existence, he experienced a brokenness from the father. And in his place, we were given his righteousness, his perfect life, his perfect attributes, his perfect character was all was all deposited into our account. So that when God sees us, he now sees us as righteous and beloved, perfect children. See, when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you become one with him. What is true of Christ becomes true of you. And so that is also true then of Jesus' resurrection. It logically follows. If God has made us one with Christ and if Christ has risen, then too all the saints must rise. And you see the confidence that Paul has about his destination when he speaks about it in verse 6. He uses this interesting language. He says, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. That language is so interesting to use. And the first time we see that language pop up is in the story of the death of Lazarus in John chapter 11. 
If you remember that story, Mary and Martha, friends of Jesus, come to him while he's ministering in a town, and they say, you've got to come back to our hometown. Our brother, Lazarus, who we know that you love as a brother yourself, he's about to die. He's sick, and we need you to come heal him. And Jesus stays in that town. He ministers two days longer, and as he's on his way back to their home village, he gets the news that Lazarus has died. He arrives in the town and they come to him and say, Jesus, you're too late. Lazarus is already gone. And Jesus' response is to say this, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. And they say, no, Jesus, you don't understand. He's dead. He's buried. He's in the grave. His body actually has started to decay. And Jesus insists that he's asleep. So Jesus calls for the stone to be removed and he He says to Mary and Martha who are standing there, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he cries out, Lazarus, come forth. And out from the dead, after after days of decay, comes a perfectly whole Lazarus. power over death itself. See, when we say that Christ died for us, what we mean is that Jesus experienced the fullness of death, the fullness of hell in being separated from the Father. And when Jesus rose again from the dead, he showed with finality and authority that he is the only one who has power over death itself. See, when you know the one who holds the keys to death, when you know the one who defeated death, death loses its power. He experienced the fullness of death so that for the Christian, the power of death is diminished to that of sleep. And in death, those who know Christ can be absolutely certain of our eternal destiny, perfectly assured of the coming resurrection, completely confident of being with Christ in eternal, unbroken communion. So if you're here and you don't believe this and you're not sure what to think about it, let me just say this. There is no sure and certain hope in life built on anything but him. There is no hope built on anything but Jesus and the power of his resurrection. And if your hope is built or if your joy is dependent on anything else, it will not, it cannot last. And our prayer for you and our invitation to you is that we would hope that God grants to you a belief in the power of his resurrection. And if you're here today and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, let's rejoice in this. Let's live as those who've been made alive from the dead. Let's set our affections and our passions on the new identification and motivation and destination that we've been given. In the words of C.H. Spurgeon, a great preacher of a century past, Let's live as those who've been given living truth 
living work, living faith. These are the things for living men. Let us cast off the grave clothes of our former lusts and wear the garments of light and life. And may the Spirit of God help us in further meditating upon these things as we leave in peace today. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the promise that Jesus gave to us that since he is risen, we have absolute confidence that we will rise as well. God, I pray that you wouldn't allow us to just walk away from this service thinking of the resurrection as a fable or a fairy tale and immediately becoming consumed and obsessed with whatever events are planned. But that through texts like this, we would see a Savior so loving that he came and was willing to die. And a God so powerful that the grave could not hold him. So Lord, let our eyes be open to your word and your person. Would we wonder at your glory? Would we wonder at your majesty? And would we be inexorably changed? And it's in the name of your beautiful son that we pray. Amen.